Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, is out now from first second, and you can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. And I am a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Uh, my research focuses on gender, critical prison studies, and museum studies, and I also make uh, largely self-published comics. So, uh, so <laughs> to introduce this episode, here we are, episode 27. This one's going to be titled uh, Decolonizing Museums. Yeah. So it's something we sort of brushed up against in the last recording, but we obviously didn't have time in that one to really go in deep to what decolonizing is or what decolonizing a museum would look like. Um, so we felt that it would be pertinent to do a whole episode about it. Yeah, and it makes only makes sense um, to continue our thoughts. And especially, it felt really pertinent to not ignore or just like yes. try to like... You know, to think that other things are more important when uh, yeah, we think decolonizing our minds and decolonizing institutions and lands and is uh, really important. <laughs> it's really important. Yeah. And so uh, we also wanted to start the episode um, with an, a land acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. So I'm recording on the traditional land of the Narragansett. I'm going to include some links to uh, the their kind of... Um, there's a museum, there's all sorts of stuff, so I'm going to include a link to their nation website on in our show notes. Yeah, and I am recording from the um, traditionally and continuously occupied lands of the Seminole, um, and I will also include uh, like links to their website and all that. Um, and I also wanted to acknowledge that uh, Gainesville is also um, the traditional territory of the Timaqua, who are unfortunately um no longer an um active tribe but um mm. worth i wanted to sort of note them anyway of course yeah. and so why don't we get started remus if you want to kick off this episode sure yeah 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 so um i actually took a more practical application um angle this time <laughs> i mean um, i could cut that from our intro no, <laughs> i like it it's true i'm usually very theory heavy um but what i actually wanted to do was establish um or share some examples of like what actual museum workers are doing um because i do like think it's really i guess speaking sort of sensitively as a person who is trying to enter the museum field i don't want to be like and here's what you should be doing museums when there's like a lot of good work already happening that i want to sort of highlight yeah and actually we should just sort of summarize what we did last episode. We just sort of <laughs> glazed over it in case you didn't listen to it. Oh, episode yes. <laughs> 26, which is titled History of Art Museums and Museum Education. History of Art Museums and Museum Education. And so what we talk about is where museums come from, sort of the Enlightenment era, um, sort of moving into mm -hmm. how art is displayed and what the museum's purpose is. A lot of it, um, unfortunately, historically, being the sort of objectification of other cultures, um, the the stealing of objects, moving them into museums. And so if you want to uh, 
uh, catch up on that episode. It's episode 26. And then we are just going to jump right from that episode. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start out with first just um, a sort of definition of what decoloniality is. So this is from a 2018 book that was co-written um, by Catherine uh, Walsh and um, Walter Mignolo, who if you sort of do a lot of research on decolonization, Mignolo and Walsh are sort of like the big names. Um, I think I've actually cited Mignolo in our episode about the canon, uh, if I recall. Um but anyway, the name of this book is On Decolonality, Concepts, Analytics, and Praxis. And this is from a section that Catherine E. Walsh um, specifically wrote. And it's from 2018. Yes. So, quote, decolonality denotes ways of thinking, knowing, being, and doing that begin with, but also precede the colonial enterprise and invasion. It implies the recognition and undoing of the hierarchical structures of race, gender, heteropatriarchy, and class that continue to control life, knowledge, spirituality, and thought, structures that are clearly intertwined with and constitutive of global capitalism and Western modernity. Moreover, it is indicative of the ongoing nature of struggles, constructions, and creations that continue to work within coloniality's margins and fissures to affirm that which coloniality has attempted to negate. So that's not specific to museums, but I thought that was like a really succinct sort of broad what we mean when we're trying to talk about decolonizing stuff, mm -hmm. right? So then I'm going to move sort of quickly through this, I think, um, into... Last episode, I talked about museums as sites of social action, mass action, which is um, like a social justice um, museum group. So they have a, t a toolkit that they put out in 2017, um, which is this really lovely um, sort of long toolkit that sort of goes over issues of like structural racism and colonization um, and like structural sexism and heteropatriarchy, kind of all this stuff, and sort of unpacks how museums sh can navigate those things. So this is their um, section on uh, colonialism. Um, so it's titled The Legacy of Colonialism. And it goes, as we know, museums have their origins generally in Western culture and specifically in Western colonialism. Talked about that last episode. Mm -hmm. Spoils of colonialism are the basis of collections in art, history, and natural science museums that are on display to this day. Generally, we do not refer to the origin of our collections when we display them concentrating instead on the exhibition story that we want to tell through objects. However, as many have affirmed, the characteristics of colonial acquisition are part of the history of our collections, and these characteristics persist in the minds of many of our visitors, especially those whose current lives, or of their ancestors, were affected by colonialism. These colonial legacies include acquisition by violence, conquest and occupation, cultural, economic, and political domination, cultural oppression, and appropriation. How might a museum go about examining this history? Um, and they have two bullet points, and it's the first bullet point is reach out to local communities with members affected by these practices, ask for their help in researching their history and for their advice in working to acknowledge and somehow address rifts caused by this history. This is the second bullet point. Create programs that bring in scholars, artists, and community members to explore, discuss, and help reinterpret or redisplay objects. They have, like, a lot more in the book. This is just the specific on just colonialism that I wanted to yank. Mm -hmm. um, one of the case studies I'm going to talk about is also from the Mass Action Toolkit. 
But then the last thing I sort of wanted to discuss before jumping into um, my case studies is um, this article by Jamara Wakefield from May 4th of 2019. So this year it is titled Museums Could Be Powerful Liberatory Spaces If They Let Go of Their Colonial Practices. And it's on the website Race Bader. So to quote Wakefield, I am constantly asking myself these questions. Why does the decolonization of museums matter? Why do I continue to visit these colonized spaces, knowing they rest comfortably in their resistance to change? I see museums as liminal spaces. The word liminal comes from the Latin root limen, which means threshold. The liminal space is the crossing over where you have left something behind, yet you are not fully in something else. When museums operate in their full liminal potential, they are able to tell non-binary histories. For U.S. museums, this means acknowledging colonialism, imperialism, and white supremacy while also striving towards a decolonized future. While I'm not certain all institutions have this potential, I believe art and cultural institutions do because many of their mission statements already lead in this direction, but too often they do not have the internal institutional courage to move from polite social justice talk to radical decolonized action. This is why it is critical that the public continue to apply pressure to power. So institutional leaders do not become complacent or complicit. I stand in the black radical tradition of hope. I believe it is possible for our institutions to serve as a zone between the what was and the next. What was is a dark history of colonization and human exploitation. The next is a decolonized world. It is coming whether the keepers of colonization want it or not. Um, and I wanted to include – it's a really mm. beautiful article, um, so I do encourage you to read the whole thing. But I wanted to include it because I think that's sort of like – when we're talking about decolonizing museums, one of the questions is obviously like, why? Why not just get rid of museums, right? And I'm going to – I have a couple of things I'm going to talk about later that also sort of address the other side of this, which is more the like get rid of museums thing. But like I I think Wakefield's point is right that there is like – when th- – th- there is the potential for certain spaces to be used in this way. Um, and I think like that's important. Right. To be able to like see where you can sort of take something and change it um, to use it in a way mm. that it's not its original intended purpose. Yeah. So those were just sort of my three opening statements. And now I'm going to move into I only have two case studies. Um, Wait. E, yes. Do me a favor and define case study for people. Oh, yeah. Um, so by school. case study, I mean, like, <laughs> just examples of actual like museums that have done work that is like defined as decolonizing work um as opposed Mm -hmm. to like theoretical like like basically they are cases of people who have done this work does that make sense yeah so it's like there's like research and statistics which show you like the numbers of who's doing this but case studies are very specifically what is happening in one specific location yeah essentially yeah and i only picked two could have grabbed more but i didn't want to like overwhelm us time wise um but i'll like in the show notes i'll link to like some further like where you can find sort of further examples there's a lot in the museum in the museum field um a lot of the writing is case study based which makes sense because a lot of the writing is coming from museum workers who are like analyzing what their institution is doing um Mm -hmm. so that's sort of one of the most popular modes. Um, so this case study actually comes from the Mass Action Toolkit again. It is they include it in as a case study in the toolkit. So it's the Abe Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine. Um, and this was written by Cinnamon Caitlin Laguto. So I'm quoting now. 
Founded in 1928, the Abe Museum's mission is to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. A historic confederacy of tribes, the Wabanaki are the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Abenaki, uh, Passamakori, and Penobscot. Um, at the Abe, their stories are showcased through changing exhibitions, special events, teacher workshops, archaeology, field schools, and craft workshops for children and adults. Native community members are actively engaged in all aspects of the museum, including policymaking policy as member of our board. Um, in late 2012, the Abe Museum Board of Trustees established a decolonization initiative, DCI, and task force. The initiative was an outgrowth of the 2012 board annual retreat facilitated by Jamie Bissonette Louis Abenaki. During this retreat, trustees and staff studied cultural and political sovereignty and developed a deeper cultural understanding of its importance. Sovereignty defined means the ability for a cultural community to be responsible for its people, and sovereignty cannot be given or taken away. An outcome of the retreat was a commitment from the trustees and staff to better understand Wabanaki culture, history, and values, examine the Abe Museum's practices at every level to see whether, uh, in what ways and to what extent, they reflect those values, and take steps towards practices that embody this commitment. In our discussion following the retreat, terms like colonialism, colonization, and decolonization surface, suggesting a framework for engaging this commitment. Abe boards and staff find the scholarly work of Amy Lone Tree, Ho Chunk, especially useful in helping us understand what it means to decolonize a museum. From her academic writings, the task force identified three decolonizing practices to guide board and staff. Um, so one is decolonizing practices at the Abe are collaborative with tribal communities. This means that when an idea for a project or initiative is first conceived, we have a conversation with native, with native advisors and make sure it's an activity that we have the right to share or pursue. We don't get halfway down the planning timeline and then check with native advisors about how we're doing and if we're getting it right. Native collaboration needs to be at the beginning and threaded throughout the life of the project. Two. The second characteristic of decolonizing museum practices uh, is to privilege the- native perspective and voice. The vast writings on the human experience are, without little exception, written by white academics and observers. When we begin to prioritize the accounts and observation of indigenous scholars and informants, the story broadens, expands, shifts, and brings clearer and non-oppressed perspectives of native history and culture. And three... Decolonizing museum practices includes the full measure of history, ensuring truth-telling and the inclusion of difficult stories. Histories of Wabanaki people connect to today's challenges. Issues around water quality, hunting and fishing rights, and mascots are connected to the past and to the present. When we present this full history, we have a better opportunity to identify harmful statements and practices. Abe working definition, decolonization means, at a minimum, sharing governance and authority for the documentation and interpretation of native culture. Decolonizing practices at the Abe are collaborative with tribal communities, um, privilege native perspectives and voice, and include the full measure of history, ensuring truth-telling. Um so, and you can actually, um, I didn't include it here, but you can go um, to the Abe Museum's website and they actually have a resource for collaborative practices um, for both community members and museum members. Um, and so they're very like upfront about mm-hmm. all the work that they're doing um, and sort of this collaborative model of um, museum running. Um, so that's my first case study. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. And then my second one um, comes – is called um, – is from an article written by Patricia Baudino, um, which was posted on The Inclusium, which is a blog dedicated to social justice particularly and specifically sort of issues of inclusion in the museum. So it's titled Reconnection in Collaboration, Zuni Collection Reviews at the Indian Arts Research Center, and it was written in 2014. Um, So Badino wrote this during her internship with the Indian Arts Research Center. Mm. So, quote, the Indian Arts Research Center, IARC, is a research collection with approximately 12,000 Native American-made objects. The collections include pottery, textiles, jewelry, painting, and basketry. The majority comes from southwestern Native tribes. Um, The IARC has a lengthy history, as does its larger institution, the School for Advanced Research. Um, And she sort of describes a little bit how, like, like, prior to um, 2012, um, a lot of the writing out of the IARC was very, like, condescending and from the perspective of, like, um, European researchers know best practices for taking care of objects Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And then, quote, in 2012, reflecting the values they hope to nurture, IARC staff changed their guiding principles to foster collaborations, listen and observe, and respect all cultures. Collections-based collaborations now happening at the IARC find their roots in these values. Collection-based collaborative work reconnects descendant communities with the cultural objects. I define collections-based collaborative as mutually constructed goals between cultural institutions and communities or individuals to gain deeper understanding of the knowledge and connections possessed by the objects in a collection. Respecting the nuanced histories of objects deepens a museum's understanding of collections while opening a dialogue with source communities about control, access, and culture. So then she moves in describing specifically the Zuni collection. So, quote, the Zuni Collection Review started in 2009 as a project to assess the, quote, pseudo-ceremonial pottery collection. After reviewing the 78 pieces in the collection, the advisors determined that the majority of the pots were not actually used for special special ceremonies, nor were they old. Potters made them look worn, altered design patterns, or left out attributes found on ceremonial pots. Thanks to the expertise of the culture advisors and this collaboration, the records now show Zuni potters created pseudo-ceremonial pots to sell to collector and museum markets in the 1900s, protecting Zuni ceremonial pots from collection or theft. This simultaneously guarded Zuni cultural traditions and filled collectors' needs for, quote, ritual art. The collection of items now has a more complete record to share with communities and researchers, telling an empowering story of Zuni ingenuity and survivance. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that really cool? Yeah. I mean, it sort of touches on what you had talked about previously about do we actually need these objects in museums to learn about these cultures? Do we need to be learning about these cultures? Is that like a necessity? Right, yeah. And this uh, group of people already had an effort to protect themselves had already like didn't actually allow their objects to be used in that way i think that's wonderful yeah um so she continues the collection reviews also added zuni names for objects creating more dynamic layered and zuni appropriate records before the collection review staff recorded the term for zuni wooden carvings as a katsinas a hopi term in the database advisors shared the zuni word for these carvings coco as well as a specific zuni name for each specific each individual coco records now reflect proper zuni names acknowledging and paying respect to the objects and the zuni worldview 
Um, the collection review established protocols for staff research visits, image requests, and collections care. The protocols ensure that the IARC respects SUNY wishes regarding object care and access. Um, protocols include handling, storage, and fo- photography instructions for objects. Researchers now must provide written permission from designated Zuni cultural advisors to view or photograph a restricted piece. Um, protocols honor Zuni beliefs and rules about their own culture, giving some control of the objects back to their community. Um, and the IARC mm-hmm. also has guidelines on their website, which say develop, which say they were developed over a three-year period of collaboration between Native and non-Native museum professionals, cultural leaders, and artists. Um, the guidelines are intended as a resource for museums and communities planning and carrying out collaborative work. And they also, on that page, link to a bunch of case, other case studies for this sort of collaborative work between um institutions and indigenous communities so i'll definitely link that Mm. so those were those are my case studies like i said those are both both of the case studies i present i have um focus on a more collaborative model um i think like that's become sort of a popularized model um that people are trying i didn't have i couldn't find like a succinct write-up for it but um last year not last year last um semester so spring of 2019 um ben garcia who's the director of the um, museum of man in san diego talked to us about um the museum of man uses also an informed consent model um where they have like they reach out to either the communities or descendants of the communities and basically like develop a plan together um where the communities can ask for items back or if they don't want them back for whatever reason they can like they basically have documentation of like um, we are keeping it in our collection for X amount of time and the informed consent model also means that they can change their mind. So like if a descendant then says, actually, no, we do want this back, they can um, revisit the contract and sort of fix like give it back um Mm. so there is like a couple different there's like a few different ways that people are trying to sort of navigate what to do basically uh, with like collections and collection keeping Mm. so that's what i have uh thank you so much remus that was awesome it's nice to like talking about uh real world examples and things that people are doing and institutions are doing. I think that's really awesome. Yeah. We are now going to move into my section on education. So last episode, episode 26, um, I sort of focused on the ways in which museum educators inside the museum use the museum, how the museum has become an educational tool just by its very presence, which is like a historical method. Right. Um, and then things like docents started to be used by the museum to help guide visitors into how they're supposed to be experiencing it, whether that is a positive or a negative method or point of view. And then also how art educators can use the museum with their classes through things like field trips and things like preparation lesson plans at inside the classroom. And that a lot of that also sort of sprung up this conversation while we're recording this episode. Yeah. Because it is difficult and complicated to figure out what our responsibility is as an educator um, and what our responsibility is to our community as a whole, but also to the individuals in our classrooms and their families. So I have a few. Um, I have a book by Linda Tuhiwai Smith from mm-hmm. 1999. 
She is a Ngati Awa and Ngati Poru activist and researcher uh, from New Zealand, and she wrote a book titled um, Decolonizing Methodologies, Research and Indigenous Peoples. Mm. So I'm going to talk about just like a couple methods that she um, proposes in that book, and then different art educators and the way they have adapted those methodologies. Because actually, Linda uh, Tuhiwai Smith um, is someone who is often referenced. Yeah. Um, So she talks about in, I believe it's chapter 8, or 12. Um, she talks about uh, 25 indigenous projects as strategies to reclaim, uh, reformulate, and reconstruct indigenous cultures and languages. So that's what she refers to them as projects. Mm. Uh, and the one that is very strategic in its purpose and activities and relentless in its pursuit of social justice. Mm. I'm going to talk about uh, three of these projects that pertain specifically to the art museum. Okay. I found a PDF of this. You should just go buy the book. <laughs> but I also found a PDF that I'll share that talk about these different projects. Um, and they have titles. So the three that I'm going to be talking about are Claiming, Representing, and Returning. Okay. So you see how they have these like sort of broad ideas and titles. Yeah. And so you have to figure out how those can apply to your situation. Um, so the first one is reclaiming. And then the 12th one on this list of 25 is representing. Mm. So it's spanning both the political sense of representation and representation as a form of voice and expression. Mm. So to quote, representation is also a project of indigenous artists, writers, poets, and filmmakers, and others who attempt to express an indigenous spirit, experience, or worldview. Representation of indigenous peoples by indigenous people is about countering the dominant society's image of indigenous peoples, their lifestyles, and belief systems. It is also about proposing solutions to the real-life dilemmas that indigenous communities confront and trying to capture the complexities of being indigenous. Many of the dilemmas are internalized stressed factors in community life, which are never named or voiced because they are either taken for granted or hidden by a community. And then number 17 is returning. Mm. This project intersects with that of claiming. It involves the returning of lands, rivers, and mountains to their indigenous owners. It involves the reparation of artifacts, remains, and other cultural materials stolen or removed and taken overseas. I feel like that one very directly is talking to art museums. And I'm really thankful that Remus uh, talked about what museums have been doing Mm -hmm. uh, to work with Native people on what on returning objects and what that can look like yeah i wish there was a like i couldn't and i don't i don't it's not because i don't think it exists i just couldn't find a good case study that was specifically about repatriation and i'm gonna be honest and say i think it's because everyone's really reluctant to return things um Mm -hmm. like the 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 most like the most specific example again i've heard of repatriation is the museum of man in san diego and so now I'm going to move on to a couple of examples of what decolonizing can look like in arts education. Okay. And the first one is a paper by Sharon Werner Chappell and Drew Chappell from uh, California mm. State University, um, Fullerton. And it's titled A Museum in a Book, Teaching Culture Through Decolonizing Arts-Based Methodologies. So it starts with an example of bringing, of uh, seeing students or children in a museum sort of interacting with this sort of false history developed through 
objects. And it, it's through objects exactly the way that uh, Remus had talked about it with the sort of cabinets of curiosity. Mm. Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah. And how they sort of are just um, sort of random objects and how that is giving uh, students the wrong concept of what different cultures can be like, right? And so to quote this paper, when introducing history to young people in order to create a material link with the past, Teachers often rely on historical artifacts housed in museums, reproductions of these artifacts in textbooks and reference materials, as well as real or simulated cultural objects for young people to encounter. Mm. Through contact with these cultural traces, students gain a vocabulary for and story of, of the past, making concrete abstract notions of historical people and places. What I liked about this is that it is sort of acknowledging why educators do want to show these artifacts or or cultural um, objects because it mm-hmm. does help with the education of um, like sort of concrete ideas of what other cultures and places can be like. Um, right. So I think that's what they're sort of presenting what the impulse is, right? Yeah. Um, then they sort of talk about how the paper is written by two white researchers mm-hmm. and they so they sort of begin their paper discussing the problematic um, issues with that we are conscious of our backgrounds and as pr- representatives of the institution that historically contributed to the colonial project and mm-hmm. we hope to undertake methods of analysis that decolonize this set of practices colonized research contained objectified and physically scarred groups of non-white peoples across the world for centuries Such research included measuring Native bodies, displaying Native peoples in medical and entertainment settings, preserving their remains, and stealing their tools and resources for university or museum use. As Linda Tuhiwai Smith, a Nagadi, Awa, and Nagadi Poru activist and researcher from New Zealand writes, The word itself, research, is probably one of the dirtiest words in the indigenous world's vocabulary. And I liked this sort of recognition of how research, well, I have often talked about how that's really important and that's really important to what um, Drawing Dialogue has been doing. Mm -hmm. I really thought it was important to recognize how research has been historically objectifying of different cultures and of different peoples in the quote-unquote pursuit of knowledge can actually cause the inhuman treatment of humans. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So later on, the paper discusses the curatorial practices developed during European Enlightenment, um, which we, which Remus so wonderfully talked about last episode, (laughs) um, which often influenced educational curricula in books, museums, or unguided tours, right? They're very, very tied together, the way in which museums were set up and then how textbooks were then set up, right? So... It also sort of reminded me of this sort of exotification of different peoples. Um, they sort of talk about how the Smithsonian and the National Geographic still continue this hierarchical categorization of people. Right. It reminded me of a caricature and the history of caricature that we talked about. Um, we've actually yeah. talked about it on many older episodes, sort of the history of cartooning and the sort of the racist history of cartooning in addition to when we talked about Wortham episode four yeah um and the way he 
Um, well, he was he was specifically drawing attention to how early comic books depictions of particularly black people and women affected youth that were girls and black. So, like, he was that was like a, a lot of his early research was sort of paying attention to that. Yeah. So his so he was a researcher of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. But it is. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is that this colonization and is um, so deeply woven into what we have been talking about on Drawing and Dialogue, but also our very presence, right? Yeah. Then this paper, I'm still on the uh, Museum in a Book paper. Um, it mm-hmm. sort of moves on to new museology, um, which Remus also so wonderfully talked about last episode. Um <laughs> I really sort of enjoy not having to summarize stuff. And just feel like <laughs> we've already covered this because then you can kind of go deeper, um, which I appreciate. So thank you. Museum administrators and researchers have begun to consider museums as zones of contact for diverse publics. Mm-hmm. The emphasis on objects has shaped to an emphasis on people and how they encounter museums and museum knowledge from different perspectives, values, and beliefs. The writers of the article uh, created an artist book as a decolonizing method, and they created mm. this work in response to museums and specifically the publisher DK and the Eyewitness series. If you remember those children's books that have like just like images of different historical objects, different uh, cultural objects. Have yeah. you seen the Eyewitness series? You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, this does ring a bell. <laughs> Yeah, I actually own two. I own one for armor and I own one for medieval life um, because they are such beautiful images of um, objects, right? Right, yeah. I remember these guys. Yeah, so I actually own them like as an adult right now. I'm looking at them on my research <laughs> shelf because they are nice images, but they are also a outcrop. You, you see these very present in schools and in school libraries and in mm-hmm. children's lives, but they are an extension of this colonizing mindset, right? Um, so Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I'm looking at them, like the different titles on Google, and yeah, it'll be like, shark, dog, hurricane and tornado, North American Indian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's a very, it's very colonial. Yes. And so what they did is, so to quote, we decided to use the construction of a collaged artist book to explore how knowledge is constructed through re-experiences rather than paradigmatic, which I believe is like typical explanations, right? Mm, Yeah. Arts-based research allows for an alternative means of both data analysis and textual representation that asks the reader to encounter a phenomenon through sensory means, experience it anew, and become unsettled in order to destabilize commonplace assumptions about that issue. And what I liked about that is that the idea of arts-based research creating art to create new knowledges outside of text outside of words um is so much of what uh comics can accomplish yeah so in our artist book we use interactive elements in both the book construction and its context in order to heighten the reader's awareness about objectivity and subjectivity related to interpreting displays of indigenous peoples of the americas 
In the book, we included selection quotes from uh, Linda to He Y Smith's book, Decolonizing Methodologies, as she speaks directly to the colonizing process of Western research itself. And here's a quote from Smith's book. At a common sense level, research was talked about both in terms of its absolute worthlessness to us, the indigenous world, and its absolute usefulness to those who wield it as an instrument. Mm. It told us things already known, suggested things that would not work, and made careers for people who already had jobs. Mm-hmm. And back to the paper. Um, her voice has felt presence that haunted us in our writing and our book construction. How could we as researchers comment on the colonizing history of research as a purpose and mode of conducting research ourselves? And are we in action and consequence inescapably participating in such history? We intended for both the structural elements of the book and its contents to build layers of counter-narrative to the curatorial practices utilized by the Eyewitness series. We also felt that the inclusion of one consistent Indigenous voice, whose context could illuminate with respect and detail, would provide a perspective that is visibly absent in the nonfiction DK texts. The Eyewitness series allows little room for reader-centered interpretation Mm. of objects or narrative about the historical context surrounding the objects. Our challenge was to raise questions about positivist research paradigms and their relationship to cultural commodification, since to us the Eyewitness series functions as both. What I liked about this is uh, we're we're talking about counter-narratives and sort of developing these questions um, and whether we are participating in something that is replicating the the, um, dominant narrative. Um, I really think this is like a really interesting and cool thing, um, but I just want to be cautious with how we're using the word um, counter-narrative because counter-narrative sort of comes from critical race um, theory and like we talked about it a bit with my um, museum studies professor about how like white people can't do a counter narrative that like runs counter to the idea of what counter narrative is. So I just want to be like mm-hmm. careful to parse out like w- when something is counter narrative and when something is maybe like an interruption or um, a disruption or something else. You know what I mean? So the building of counter narratives is something that I talked about a lot in my master's thesis about um, why art education is really important to bring into classrooms and to be teaching students to start to be empowered to tell these stories. Yeah. Yeah. So now um, I'm sort of jumping into the implications uh, section, the the conclusion area of this paper. Yeah. Um, so how can, quote unquote, Western ethnograph- ethnographic display mm-hmm. occur with consciousness of its tendency to essentialize, romanticize, and mythologize non-dominant cultures? Mm-hmm. How can museums, nonfiction guides, school curriculum, and even tourism borrow from post-structural and postmodern approaches to decenter the assumed authority of both writer and artifact? Mm. With our artist book, we both used an arts-based method for ana- analyzing the data of the children's books and suggested through heuristic example arts-based ways that teachers might work with students to destabilize historical and cultural c- constructions. As readers encountered texts like the eyewitness series, museum exhibitions displaying various cultures, we ask them to emancipate themselves from passive consumption. 
Instead, an active way of looking involves inviting destabilization, feeling comfortable with not knowing and even resisting the authority of the text, and raising key questions about subjectivity and construction of narratives in both writer and viewer. Mm. Initial topics for discussion with young people might include, one, the subjectivity of the researcher. How does the text explicitly and implicitly situate the writer in relation to the subject matter? What do we know about the researcher? What are the purposes of the writing? Who benefits from the writing? Who does not? Two, the use of multiple voices. How does this display include polyphony through choice of artifact and interpretation? When are those multiple perspectives included? When are they not? How do the perspectives presented affect what we know? Three, the use of experiences versus objects. Mm. How does this display portray or include people's performed actions, such as stories, rites, ceremonies, behaviors, in addition to showing their objects? How does the use of performance change our understanding of the story told? Four, the construction of narrative. How does the display fragment this story by period, location, or theme? Who made those choices? How does that affect our understanding? Five, the role of viewer inquiry. How does the display encourage or shut down further scholarship, dialogue, and action? How does viewer-initiated action affect the stories told and the power held by the owners of the display? Um, so... Something that I liked about this paper is that it's an arts-based attempt at a project to decolonize the teaching of culture, right? Right. Um, Now, whether or not I personally agree with what happened with this project, I do think it's interesting to sort of examine what art is able to do with these sort of larger ideas um, in a classroom. Yeah. Um, I do enjoy encouraging critical thinking in students and sort of thinking about their own research and whether their resources are a good resource. How, <laughs> um, and thinking of, uh, and sort of trying to decolonize their own research methods. Um, yeah. I think that is a valuable thing to be teaching uh, students in the classroom. Um, I honestly, I think, you know, an honest representation of how difficult this is because we aren't authorities. Like I'm white. Remus is white. (laughs) We we aren't authorities on these, in these things. Um, so it's okay if it's messy, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's better to be messy than to, uh, try to present ourselves as having a clean take on anything. Yeah. We're learning. We're learning. So I do just have a couple more. Uh, things uh, it's j- there's just this, this wonderful thing from teaching tolerance if you are an educator and you don't regularly get teaching tolerance emails sent to your inbox what are you doing sign up for teaching tolerance um but they had a little um sort of uh just a blog post called decolonizing the classroom teaching with indigenous comics bring native cultures stories and perspectives out of the margins of your curriculum with comics by and about native people it was written by amanda morris um in august 6 uh, 2018 i'll link it in the show notes Mm. So, when I first started teaching with indigenous comics, my goal was to lighten the mood of my Native American rhetorics class. Little did I know at the time, but these comics and comic collections, indigenous stories told by indigenous peoples today, would become one of my students' favorite mediums for learning about contemporary Native American peoples, their stories, traditions, and struggles for cultural continuance in a deafening American landscape that continues to ignore 
indigenous presence. Mm. So Linda Tuhiwai Smith, again uh, referenced by this author, writes about storytelling, celebrating survival, and centering indigenous voices as three colonizing strategies or projects in decolonizing methodologies. Teaching with comics created by indigenous artists, writers, designers, and editors employs these three strategies. It's also more accessible, heading off potential defensiveness and generating mm. more discussion and enthusiastic engagement for high school and college students. And I sort of like this acknowledgement of how it can be difficult for white people, especially white young people, to talk about colonization, to talk about these like white supremacy and things like this. Um, it can uh, create a certain defensiveness. And if you haven't experienced that, even if you aren't an educator, you've probably experienced that um, there can be a sort of a white defensiveness and it doesn't necessarily make someone a bad person, you know? And if you are an educator um, trying to um, speak to students, I think it's helpful to um, use methods to sort of calm that, right? Mm -hmm. To generate discussion. And so she offers three comics that she uses, which are all pretty recent. Mm -hmm. The first one is Sovereign Traces Volume 1, not just another published by Michigan State University in 2018. And the next one is Dear Woman, an anthology by Native Realities Press from 2017. And the third and final one was Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection Volumes 1 and 2, by, published by AH Comics in 2015 and 2017. And I'll link all those where you can purchase them for your own classroom or your own life. By the time they reach high school, students are already quite familiar with the traditional literary quote-unquote canon. As you plan for fall, this fall, consider centering indigenous voices, experiences, and stories in your classroom by leading your instruction with one of these indigenous comics collections. Bring native stories out of the margins. Contact the publishers to arrange for a bulk purchase and blah, blah, blah. We can change the narrative about native peoples in the United States from one of erasure and absence to one of continuance and presence. One classroom, one teacher, and one student at a time. Adopting these texts is a good start. So I just really liked It's very practical. You can go buy these books right now. <laughs> yeah, that's very practical. Um, and I like that they're new. And then I sort of ended with Milo's Museum by Zeta Elliott. Um, so Milo's Museum is a children's book and it's um, it's about, well, I'll just read the summary right here. I don't know why I'm trying to summarize it when I have one right here. <laughs> Milo's excited about her class trip to the museum. The docent leads them on a tour and afterward Milo has time to look around on her own, but something doesn't feel right. And Milo gradually realizes that the people from her community are missing from the museum. When her aunt urges her to find a solution, Milo takes matters into her own hands and opens her own museum. It's a very sweet children's oh. book. Uh, Zeta Elliott uh, self-published it through Amazon. Um, so you can just buy it right off of Amazon, which I know Amazon isn't our favorite, but that's where it's published. So, yeah. um, I mean, honestly, so Zeta Elliott, I don't need to, you know, it's all connected. So Zeta Elliott self-publishes her books through Amazon because... You can upload your PDF and then it prints one when someone orders it or you can get it digitally. Right. Um, because publishers weren't picking her books up because they are, you know, creating counter narratives of um, yeah, yeah. their counter narrative texts. And so she started self-publishing when publisher mainstream publishers were gatekeeping against her. So um, that's why she's on Amazon. 
So uh, I have a review from Social Justice Books. Um, the review is by Deborah Menkart. And also it talks about a lesson plan that you can use with elementary school kids when you teach Milo's Museum. This story opens awesome. up the door to age-appropriate conversations with young children about representation, institutional racism, youth activism, museum studies, lessons from family, and community engagement. It's also one of the all-too-few books that describes youth activism supported and informed by elders, instead of in opposition or in isolation of adults. Yeah. The review goes on to give a elementary-level lesson plan for kids to develop their own museum in conjunction with talking to family members and elders and sharing those stories. Ask students to talk to the elders their families, parents, grandparents, uncles and adults, and aunts. Ask them to share photographs and heirlooms that tell a story about their family. And here's a question. Have your, has your family ever migrated from one place to another? What objects help you celebrate your family's cultures? And so, like, I suggest this book. It's uh, really a lovely book. And it just, like, very simply sort of and very positively talks about creating what a museum is and what it should be. And so she creates her own museum for her own neighborhood and puts different objects from her family that represent these important moments um, and what a museum can be. And that ends my segment. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I don't, I think let's just move into the conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, so okay. now we're in our conclusion segment. Uh, what did we learn? What are our goals? What are our takeaways? Um, what can they be? Yeah. So I actually, I have something for the conclusion this time for once. Because um, I did <laughs> want to sort of like address a little bit of the irony <laughs> of us doing this episode. Because like, obviously, it's really important that we talk about it. And I want it to be like, I'm glad that it was sort of messy for us. Um because we're not experts, like Kathy said, we're both white. Um, but I, I, I wanted to sort of end on this note of these t two writings that sort of offer, I guess, a, a less like hold hands embrace vision of decolonization. So the first is um, Sumaya Kasim's um, "The Museum Will Not Be Decolonized," um, which is. An article from November 15th, 27, that was posted on Media Diversified. So this is just a short. Um, and the museum will not be decolonized, uh, Cassium sort of describes. Uh, she was asked to be a co-creator um, for an exhibition at the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. So, like, museums do this a lot as a strategy where they will bring in curators of color and have them do, like, a special exhibition, basically. Um, is trying to, like, address the issues. So, um, quoting Kasim, Decolonizing is deeper than just being represented. When projects and institutions proclaim a commitment to diversity, inclusion, or decoloniality, we need to address these claims with a critical eye. Decoloniality is a complex set of ideas. It requires complex processes, space, money, and time. Otherwise, it runs the risk of becoming another buzzword like diversity. As interest in decolonial thought grows, we must beware of museums and other institutions' propensity to collect and exhibit because there is a danger, some may argue, in an inevitability 
that the museum will exhibit decolonality in much the same way that they've displayed have displayed black and brown part bodies as part of the empire's collection. I do not do not want to see decolonization become part of Britain's national narrative as a pretty curio with no substance or worse for decolonality to be claimed as yet another great British accomplishment. The railways, two world wars, one world cup, and decolonization. Rather than place the onus on people of color, either as facilities or as an audience for the museum, we need to flip the narrative and ask how the museum can facilitate the decolonial process for its majority white audience in a way that does not continue to exploit people of color. Key to this is accepting that the museum needs us, meaning people of color. We do not need the museum. Institutions need to stop giving access to BAME, which stands for... Um, Black, Asian, and minority ethnic, people's own culture is something they should be grateful for, and they should definitely ensure that focus groups and visiting curators are remunerated adequately for their work. Um, and then sort of building on that is this 2018, December 7th, 2018 article um, on, from the American fr- – by um, Paul Y. Carnes um, – posted on the American Alliance of Museums, which is um, decolonization, we aren't going to save you. Um, and this, and Carnes, Cairns is a, um, is the head of uh, Maturanga Maori um, at Te Papa. Um, she's the head of the Maori collection. And again, it's sort of just discussing the prevalence of decolonization as a hot topic in the museums. Quote, and it is with increasing frequency, Indigenous colleagues and I are asked to write, travel to oversee conferences, offer advice, provoke and lead discussions, our thoughts, bodies, and opinions, regularly mined for insight and guidance about decolonization. Gratifying to the ego it may be in the short term, but it is not sustainable in the long term. It's wearying and it prompts the question, how different will decolonized processor state be in comparison to how Indigenous museum workers like me already operate? Is decolonization a challenge to museums or is change? Or is it actually a demand that indigenous people escalate their efforts for the greater good? Like Sumaya, so she's referencing the museum will not be decolonized article. I don't want to decolonize museums either, but focus on the processes of re-indigenizing to remaurify the spaces where and how our stories are told. I'm not interested in rehabilitating the whole museum. Is that shocking? I don't believe that decolonization efforts should be diverted to merely redeem whiteness in museums. The co-option of decol as the latest trendy cultural theory and praxis by mainstream organizations run the very real danger of locking indigenous people into a death dance with colonial structures with its demands that we work in labor until we are completely consumed. Um, so like I said, I just wanted to sort of include those because it felt also important to have those perspectives alongside the like – these are what museums are actively doing because um, it is a very like hot topic, quote unquote, in museum studies right now. Um, and I think there is absolutely like an ongoing trend of like, it's a lot of white people writing about um, how we can decolonize. And I, it, it, we also sort of run the risk of that. So I just wanted to like also acknowledge the other side. I did notice how both your examples sort of involved yeah, inviting people to come do work, do labor, and I'm sure people are being paid um, sometimes. Um, but yeah, that is a ongoing issue, right? Of wanting to, um, I mean, it's not um, genuine inclusion if people are not yeah. treated equally, right? If they're just brought in um, to sort of solve someone else's problem, right? Yeah, and I think that 
often sort of becomes what people think decolonization is. So I think it's interesting because like I sort of makes me want to run through all the list of what the decolonizing methodologies that Smith have talked about. Cause I only said three, but she has 25 and just want to read that list Yeah, because you know, I mean, we, it's true that all of, almost all of our examples are genuinely, um, generally kind of, uh, gentle, mm-hmm. like they aren't very radical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think we aren't necessarily afraid of being radical. Oh no. Uh, I mean, I am, I, um, there's a radical museum journal called forward museums and their previous issue was literally death to museums. Uh, um, yeah. So if you want your radical museum studies forward museum is where you want to go. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So the 25 projects that Smith talks about are claiming testimonies, storytelling, Celebrating survival, remembering, indigenizing, intervening, revitalizing, connecting, reading, writing, representing, gendering, envisioning, reframing, restoring, returning, democratizing, networking, naming, protecting, creating, negotiating, discovering, and sharing. Um, so again, I'm going to link this PDF, but I mean, it's an entire book on different decolonizing methods, mm-hmm. right? There's like a lot, um, that can be done. They can't be summarized in an hour long podcast episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, by non-authorities of the subject. <laughs> uh, so any more conclusions? No, that's it. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to keep, um, thinking about this. Oh yeah. I think we're going to keep talking about this. Definitely. Because, so this is decolonizing specifically uh, museums. Right. Right. But colonization is an aspect of so many parts of my life, right? Mm-hmm. Of a dominant life. And so if it's not something you're working on, just like anti-racism, you have to continually be working on it. And I sort of believe in that. Yeah. Um, not to be trailing off so hard. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, though. It's a good, I mean, we aren't, we can't. We're not, like, we said this a thousand times, but we're not experts. So, like, it is something we just need to be continually working on. Something I had thought about is, so now when I am doing a presentation, like, for educators, um, because I do those. Right. You know, if you want to invite me to do a talk about comics in education, (laughs) absolutely, I'm down for it. (laughs) Let me know. Um, But I always start... Um, sort of giving my social signifiers, which is sort of a method of like social justice education. When you're creating dialogues, you sort of talk about your own social signifiers. So like uh, mine are, I am white, uh, neurotypical, I have a list, genderqueer, um, transgender individual. Uh, so I sort of just sort of talk about that. And then I talk about why it's really important to know where you're coming from when you're in a classroom and like allow like just be like this is my perspective i'm not the authority because i cannot be an authority on everything but this is where i'm coming from these are my social signifiers and i do that for my classrooms and educational settings now Mm -hmm. but we don't do it for drawing a dialogue we've mentioned our social signifiers within episodes yeah um but we never just talk about it and i'm wondering if we should just start doing that always sort of introducing who we are at the beginning of an episode yeah Um, i wonder i feel like maybe it's harder because the podcast i feel like like a classroom is sort of an ongoing thing right but we do this we would we'd be sort of doing that once a month 
ad nauseum. Um, so I, it feels a little like I, it feels a little different to me, but I do think that I don't know if there's a way that we could compromise on our website, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um. I mean, don't cut this. I I I want to include this for our listeners. Yeah. So that this no, is something 100%. that I realized maybe we should be considering. And we did do a land declaration at the beginning, and maybe we should be doing that every every episode yeah. too. And I'm. I mean, I'm not. I feel like once a month isn't. <laughs> if someone's not, binge listening to us, hello, hello, everyone. <laughs> I don't think it would be so bad. It, maybe not. Well, we can try. Um. But we I can try. We can talk about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't mean to spring this on you okay. in such a public <laughs> method. Yeah, and so now it's time for letter our segment letters to the editor. Um, it's where we revisit past topics and sort of add new research. And sometimes we actually read your email you've sent us, and you can send us letters at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Do you have anything for letters to the editor? Yeah, I have a couple of things. I mentioned Amy Lone Tree in the Abe Museum example, but she actually has a whole book uh, titled Decolonizing Museums Representing Native America and National and Tribal Museums. Um, I couldn't get my hands on a copy of it for this episode, uh, but I wanted to shout it out because it, it, there it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's it's a very awesome. um, useful. I think it's probably like a very useful um, book. Um, and Amy Lone Tree is a pretty important scholar. Um, I also wanted to shout out awesome. um, something I used a lot for this episode is the uh, Social Justice and Museums Resource List, which is like a running annotated bibliography Google Doc um, that was begun by uh, Tanya S. Autry in 2015. And Tanya cool. S. Autry is another like kind of important um, museum professional um, who does a lot of like work on like race and cultural heritage institutions. Um, and it's since been like a lot of people have added to it and it's like uh, it covers like a wide variety of topics. So I'll link it in the show notes. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. And then I want to mention in Letters to the Editor, I want to reference back to our Drawing a Dialogue episode 19, which was titled GIRLS in all capitals, <laughs> um, where we talked about uh, sort of riot girl zine culture and also uh, sort of the history of education of girls and women. And I also talk about Girl Scouts and specifically the Girls Rock Camp Alliance. Yeah. And I wanted to announce that Girls Rock Rhode Island, our local chapter here in Providence, Rhode Island, just changed their name literally yesterday. <laughs> it's oh, very wow. exciting. To Riot. <laughs> oh R-I-O-T. That rules. Which stands for Revolution in Our Time. And it was like it was all youth centered who voted on it and found come up came up with the name. And I just really, I really appreciate and wanted to acknowledge the way that marginalized genders and marginalized gender experiences are starting to be more united, yeah. right? Like to, to be a trans boy or a trans girl or to be a cis girl all or a non-binary kid or like someone who's questioning, right? Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to know what your identity is at all times. Um, I think uh, sort of that solidarity in that experience of um, being a marginalized, a gendered person, um, I think is really sick and cool. And I really like uh, organizations that um, were originally had girl in the name and sort of focused on that experience are realizing that's not um, maybe the way forward. And maybe that's never been the way forward, right? I think that's really cool. 
Um, so I just wanted to share that they changed their name. Also Priscilla, I interviewed Priscilla Carrion, who um, in our Drawing a Dialogue Presents episode um, in the summer, um, she had referenced that they are working on uh, retitling it. She is part of the board for Riot. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I just thought it was really cool that they're moving forward oh, with that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And also, not just the gender aspect, but also the girls rock aspect, the music aspect doesn't necessarily. So rock and roll is also um, a cultural experience and they wanted to include other different types of music that aren't necessarily you know like hip-hop or rap um or you know creating any sorts of like you know not necessarily having a rock band which can not be um, what everyone wants to be doing with their music yeah yeah for sure um yeah, so I just thought that was really cool, and it was just yesterday. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> it's really exciting. I miss Providence. I gotta yeah. get back. <laughs> we're we're here. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to say thanks to Downtown Boys for the way for their song "Wave of History." It's off their album "Full Communism," getting it off their Bandcamp. Also, like very much, "Wave of History" is very much about uh colonization what mm-hmm. that is um so uh get that album if you haven't gotten it yet i say it every episode <laughs> uh you can go to drawingadialogue.com to view all the show notes uh, and the citations for this podcast drawingadialogue.com is of course hosted by comic art ed which is kathy's very good comic art education website <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> you can email us, as mentioned, at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Uh, and you can tweet at us at draw a dialogue or just follow us. You can follow me at E H E T J A E Hetja. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John. I also have a website called kathygjohn.net. You can see all my art and stuff. I have a website, but I'm trying to. Update I just realized it. I'd never say that. Yeah. Oh, it's a secret. It's a, um, it's, a, it's in progress. <laughs> it's been a pleasure recording a podcast with you, Remus. I'm sorry this one might have been a little bit difficult. No, it's fine. <laughs> you say that as though this is the last one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I think it's interesting, you know, sometimes uh, in the moment challenging of each other um, can be tricky, yeah. but I appreciate doing it with you. It, is, it does feel like a safe yeah, space. Yeah, of course. I like doing it with you too. What are you reading, Remus? Oh, um, so I am in the middle of working on my master's thesis. Um, Congratulations. Very cool. Sure. Um, <laughs> but so most <laughs> the part I'm working on right now is not is like dry. So I've been, but I've been reading a lot of um for i think i've explained because we did an episode where i sort of talked about this but i'm basically doing sort of an english thesis version of a project report (laughs) um and so part of it is an artist statement so i've been sort of revisiting some of my favorite um writing uh and theorists and writers um as part of that to see what i sort of want to include in that um and so i just wanted to give a shout out to the essay um the best lighting for my body was at the White Horse Inn and Bar, Oakland, California, which is by Tony Wei Ling. Uh, it was published in Black Warrior Review, um, which is an online journal. And it's just a very beautiful, very beautiful. Uh, Tony, like, <sighs> Tony's a friend and also, like, writes so well. 
that like every time I read something mm. they've written, I'm like, oh yeah, writing is good actually. <laughs> um, cool. Which is like That's such awesome. a nice feeling. Um, so yeah. what are you reading, Kathy? Um, I'm reading 60 Ready to Use Coding Projects, edited by Alyssa Krosky. Um, it's published by uh, the American Library Association. Uh-huh. Um, it's a very. It just came out. Just just came out by the ALA. Uh, it's very expensive because it's like eighty bucks or something Jeez. like that. But I got. It, I bought it through the, my school. Right. Um, and it's just like computer coding and programming uh, projects to do with classrooms from all age ranges, and it includes two projects by my friend Olivia Horvath. Oh, <laughs> this one. Including a digital dress-up, like, doll game with, like, yeah. like, a cutout doll programming game, which is super cool. And also remix a meme using Scratch. And it just, I just really love um, coming up with, like, you know, like, kids-centered fun things to do on a computer and not, like, making it seem like uh, like memes or, like, doing cool stuff on the computer is, like, a huge problem deluge against our children in our schools right yeah <laughs> i really like embracing it and making it fun that is super cool we do a lot of um meme my department is really big on meme assignments which makes sense because we're all millennials <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've got it i have a i'm teaching a video game class this trimester oh that's so, so cool. i'm gonna do some yeah yeah, doing some coding. We're doing twine games and doing some Photoshop pics. It's fun. I actually, yeah. it was really interesting. Um, this past semester, I taught a class on like, it was called Life Writing in the Margins. And it was basically like non-traditional autobiography by not white men um, is like the quickest pitch I can cool. give for it. Um, yeah, sure. And I started the game, I started the semester by having everyone play Dysphoria, that anti-anthropy game. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting because they all come like they don't have any like they were too late to twine like none of them have any frame of reference for twine. And I had one student who like throughout the semester sort of kept returning to dysphoria and writing about it. And so we ended up having a lot of conversations about like this is twine and this was the cultural zeitgeist of twine. And like here's all the cool stuff about twine. And it was like such an interesting teaching moment for me because um, it feels like such recent history to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's all, like, popular games are from 2013, 2016, like, it doesn't seem that long ago, but no, I, I, I know, I have to kind of convince kids that Twine, so if you don't know what Twine is, to be honest, it's like a point-and-click HTML-coded, it's like a visual novel type thing where yeah. you just sort of choose your own adventure but it's mostly text-based yeah it was designed for like interactive like choose your own adventure style fiction and then people got like really good at it yeah <laughs> so it's like really text-based so usually i spend my first few days with my students being like i'm gonna just show you the kind of games that you're gonna make they're not gonna be like call of duty because thousands of people work on those this is like yeah, things you I can remember. do right now by yourself my first class I taught I'll be so disappointed my first class I taught I played sort of a mean trick on them 
Um, Because I was teaching a unit on writing, like, evaluative writing, so, like, analyzing something based on, like, criteria, and so I gave them Horse Master, and I made them evaluate it, and, like, they could have any opinion, they just couldn't, like, they had to justify it, they couldn't just be like, I hate this, right? They had to, like, give criteria for it. Um, And Horse Uh Master, for those who are unaware, is this incredibly esoteric twine game, and they were all like, oh boy, we get to play a video game. And then they played it and they were like, this isn't even a video game. It doesn't have any pictures. <laughs> it has yes. no audio. <laughs> and it was really funny. I felt. <laughs> I love Twine. Rude. Though. It's fun to trick students. That's what we're out here doing. <laughs> Horse Master is a very good game. It's just if you don't have a frame of reference for text RPG adventures, you're like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I it's really actually strangely tough to find age appropriate games because a lot of games like that will have some swear words or something in it. So yeah, I, teach I have a list kids so I can give them curses. Yeah, I'll share the list of like sort of age appropriate twine games yeah, if, you, if anyone cares. <laughs> I mean, it's visual narrative. I mean, it's very, I mean, comics, it's, they're holding hands, honestly. They are. No, seriously, tw- like Twine rules. I think we should bring Twine back in 2020. Everyone start making Twine games again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm making them with a bunch of, a room full of kids, so I don't know. All right. Um, so that was What Are We Reading? The longest segment <laughs> that we've ever had. Um, so... Thank you so much for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. Yes, My name is you. Kathy G. Johnson. I'm Remus Jackson. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye! Bye.